welcome to Growing Up Skywalker. I'm Sam. Hi, I'm Anna. And today we're talking about Attack of the Clones Part 2. Boom, boom, boom. Very exciting. Where did we leave off, Sam? We left off right as uh, Shmi Skywalker, Anakin's mom, is being buried, which is interesting. That's the first time I think we've seen a body buried rather than burnt. Yeah, we've seen a lot of cremations. Makes sense because there's really nothing to burn on Tatooine. That's probably a wildfire hazard. It's like a red flag warning. I mean, there's nothing to burn because there's like no living anything. Although she was out for mushrooms. But anyway, uh, so let's go over the plot of what's happening in the second half of Attack of the Clones. Because while the first half is a bunch of politics and people falling in love and talking and investigation, the second half is action, 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 action. Yeah, we went from a lot of interpersonal character insight into straight battle scenes. Mm Mm-hmm. Which I will say makes the second half of the movie go a lot faster than the first. This is true. So um, we start off and Anakin, having gone to Tatooine, they receive a message from Obi-Wan because uh, in his battle with Jango, his long-range transmitter has been blasted. And so he sends a message to Naboo, doesn't find them there, finds them in Tatooine, which is apparently the next planet over. Or at least in the angle that he's looking at. So they get a message. R2 sneaks out and says, hey, uh, it's Obi-Wan. He's in trouble on Geonosis. Anakin, once again, uses the letter of the law rather than the intent of the law, or whichever one matters to him at the time, and says, no, I don't want to go to Geonosis. I want to stay hanging out making out with Padme. And Padme says, well, I'm going to Geonosis and you have to protect me. That's not what Anakin does. Anakin essentially says, well, I can't leave you to go do this thing that I want to do. And Padme, who once again has no concept of her own mortality, says, okay, well, then you're going to have to come with me to Geonosis because I'm rescuing Obi-Wan, which is an A plus moment for Padme. This is true. They go to Geonosis. Meanwhile, back on Coruscant, Masameda, who's the blue guy who is uh, Palpatine's major domo, they're sitting around saying, oh, well, we need to form the creation of an army. If only someone cool like Padme was here to help us out in the presence of Jar Jar Binks, who is easily swayed. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. And so even though she was ostensibly on Coruscant earlier in the movie to protest against a military creation act, this is the moment where it all comes into play of giving the chancellor more power. This is a really embarrassing moment for Jar Jar, who has known Padme for more than 10 years now, Mm -hmm. and probably has a good sense that she's a pacifist. Mm -hmm. Do you think there was any mind trickery involved, or is Jar Jar just... Well, it's either Darth Jar Jar, or it's... (laughs) (laughs) Or it's, uh, you know, mind trickery, or him just being Jar Jar and being perennially clumsy... I imagine the Gungans might have sent him to Coruscant because that's as far away as they can send him. Ouch. Yeah. Anyway, Obi-Wan is captured in a cutscene, which is rough. The message is him being like, hey, guys, oh, no, droids. And we he comes to and we meet Count Dooku in the flesh. Boop, boop, boom. So Count Dooku, we had seen him uh, talking about organizing the Separatist Alliance and talking with Watt Tambor and a bunch of other people, Pavel Velasser, saying- New Gunray. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, I'm going to get together this whole huge alliance, but they catch Obi-Wan. 
And uh, Christopher Lee steals the rest of the movie because Christopher Lee is amazing. Sam has this huge smile on his face. I love Christopher Lee. So Christopher Lee, uh, who's Count Dooku, also played Saruman, also has just an extremely long movie career. Uh, He did all of his own sword work in this. When he was in Lord of the Rings, he was the only one who was a personal friend of J.R.R. Tolkien. Are you kidding me? I am not. He is a direct descendant of Charlemagne. Are you kidding me? He made a heavy metal album about Charlemagne in his 90s. Very cool dude. And he's probably actually James Bond because he tore across North Africa with Ian Fleming during World War II and has said, I can't talk about it. I can never talk about it. Those records will always be sealed. But I was in North Africa during World War II, probably driving around in a Jeep blowing stuff up. I heard Christopher Lee is a professional fencer, like an expert fencer. Um, He's a good fencer. He, I mean, to the point where he shows up and there's a pretty distinct, scooting forward a bit, there's a pretty distinct stylistic choice that he makes. He's very good. Although at the time of this movie, he was in his 80s. So his footwork is done by someone else. He has a uh, body double or some of that because he's an old, old guy. But he's got this line of the... Senate is under control of a Sith Lord, and you, Obi-Wan, and I, Count Dooku, need to solve this. And Obi-Wan just says, la la la, I can't hear you. If you had actually listened, it turns out that Count Dooku was correct. Although that is, um, you know, somewhat of the Sith policy is you are in training of your Sith Master, and then you eventually kill them and take their spot. And so this was him probably attempting to take on Obi-Wan as a little Sith. Ooh. Yeah. But... Only to defeat it by Obi-Wan's, uh, like, implacable idealism. Or his beard. He says a line, Join me and together we will destroy the Sith Lord, which is an interesting callback to uh, Empire Strikes Back. There's a lot of callbacks to Empire Strikes Back in this episode, a lot of lines that are repeated in an interesting way, and that's one of them. Or is it foreshadowing? Well, in this case, in the order we're watching, it's foreshadowing, but this movie is 20 years later, so it's a callback. Um, Then we have, I made a note of how many awesome ships does Padme have, because she flies a different cool silver ship than than in Phantom Menace or the one that was just blown up, all silver. Padme is blinging, just Mm -hmm. straight blinging always. And Anakin and Padme show up, find a parking spot on Geonosis, and proceed to make their way into an extremely convoluted factory floor fight that's right out of a, uh, golly, like a 1930s madcap comedy. It's quite wild. Also, they steal C-3PO. He's with them. Like, oh my God, you're right. (laughs) Oh my God. There's just no mention of all of a sudden he's on their ship. They just abscond with C-3PO from... We're going to Geonosis now. And C-3PO's like, I don't know if my owners are on Tatooine or what, but I'm I'm with you guys now. (laughs) Oh my God. And R2-D2 literally peer pressures him off a cliff into the factory. Uh, As part of the humor of this scene, I say a little bit tongue in cheek. Uh, C-3PO gets his head swapped onto a battle droid and spends the rest of the battle just providing comic relief, the upcoming battle. So this factory scene is absolutely ridiculous. In, in the classical Star Wars fashion of there being 
nothing even resembling occupational self health and safety. Like everything is just extremely dangerous. I mean, Padme almost gets minted like a coin at the Smithsonian. <laughs> she does. <laughs> Anakin's lightsaber gets chopped in half by a cutting blade on the Can we line. talk about the amount of lightsaber fumbles in this movie? Because it is distracting. Mace Windu even loses his lightsaber. He does. In the final battle on Geonosis. That's, yeah, it's less of an issue for him because he's a complete and utter badass. But uh, He's a butterfingered badass, apparently. One of my very favorite webcomics, uh, Darts and Droids, which y'all should check out. It's very fun. The setting in this is that a different DM who's very uh, rules-oriented made this whole multi-part module with millions of moving pieces, and it's it's a lot of fun, but the players hated it. And I can see like the lightsaber fumbles. Is Oh, no, I rolled a one. Like, yeah, that's a fumble. Some DMs will do that. I think it's very rude, but that's because I play Paladins. Um, lots of extra 3PO-ness. 3PO is utterly ridiculous. And of course, they end up in the classic trope of you will now be eaten by beasts in an arena in front of 30,000 people. There's an extremely Hunger Games style <laughs> execution plotline. Yeah, I mean, it's a very classic trope of like, you're in the gladiatorial combat ring and now you get to fight for your life. Anakin, Obi-Wan, and Padme all end up chained to these gigantic stakes in the middle of a gladiatorial arena with 150,000 winged insect Geonosians kind of screaming for their blood. And... There's a phenomenal scene with crotchety Obi-Wan when Padme and Anakin get chained up next to him. And I, I, I don't remember. It's some rescue to that effect, and which is another callback to A New Hope when, you know, Han and Luke show up to rescue Princess Leia. And she's like, do you have an exit strategy? It's like, uh, through the garbage chute, I guess. Like, yeah. So that's that's how that's how these things go. Um, what I love about that, uh, right, right before they enter the arena, uh, Anakin and Padme profess their actual deep undying love for each other as they're about to get killed. Y'all can't see me rolling my eyes at this. I, I don't think that falling in love should feel like dying a little bit every single day, which is verbatim what Padme says to Anakin. It's not a great line. Anyway. So uh, while Anakin and Obi-Wan banter, Padme picks the locks of her handcuffs and climbs up on top of the pillar, which is great action, Padme. Just doing the most. Yeah, this is when Padme springs into action. I love this because the implication is that Padme like pulled a bobby pin out of her bun and was like, yeah, okay, I can get out of this. I mean, Anakin and Obi-Wan look over and Padme is on top of her execution block, just Mm -hmm. basically prepared to fight off the schmonsters. 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 So the schmonsters proceed to, you know, the, our, our protagonists escape, obviously, from the monsters, and they end up riding one of the big horned beasts. It's like a rhino. It's with like all horns. aboard. Yeah. And Newt Gunray is very cheesed because he just wants to see Padme die because he's a vengeful little toad person. And Count Dooku calls in the Droidicas to hold them all hostage when all of a sudden in rides. Dun-da-da-da! First of all, 
Mace Windu. So many Jedi. Yeah, the Jedi have infiltrated the crowd. Mace Windu holds a lightsaber to Jango Fett's throat. This party's over. And Dooku's like, I'm willing to dance. And they they start having a, a big brawl, big fight. Jango shoots out at uh, Mace with his flamethrower. And Mace Windu decides to not take fall damage, jump out of a 30th story balcony, land he on the ground. He force jumps. Yeah. I love watching Mace Windu in action. He is great. Samuel L. Jackson plays him well. He's a very fun character because of the understatement of it, which is a distinct contrast to a lot of the other characters that Samuel L. Jackson plays. Hmm. I like his purple lightsaber. You know, that's that was his one thing for wanting to be in the movie. He's like, I just want a purple lightsaber. And George Lucas is like, that's cool. There's, there's no reason for it. There's a lot of things that were backfilled in later on why he has it. Uh, Mace kills Jango Fett. <sighs> In uh, a little bit of foreshadowing, Jango Fett has a really tough time with a rhino beast, gets trampled a couple times, then easily knocks it out with his laser or with his uh, blaster. But in a one on one fight with a Jedi, he brought a laser gun to a lightsaber fight and gets. He uh, brought his son to a lightsaber fight who then had to witness his father self, his father self. Yeah, have a really bad haircut. Oh. Jesus. <laughs> this is about 12 inches off the top. So things are looking pretty grim. And then all of a sudden, it's Yoda and the clones to the rescue. Mm-hmm. So this is a little bit of a callback to something we talked about last episode with why the clones, like why... Mace and Yoda said, don't worry so much about the clones, worry about Jango. Right. So in the first half of this movie, Obi-Wan tracks Jango Fett to the Kamino Mm -hmm. planet and promptly seems to disregard the connection between this bounty hunter who wants Padme dead Mm -hmm. and this mysterious clone army that has been grown ostensibly for the benefit of the Republic. And so I asked Sam, is this a plot hole? Is like, what is happening here? And it seems to me like this is an example of uh, delegation where Yoda, the most senior member of the Jedi Council, is like, well, I'll go investigate what's going up with these clones. At this moment, he shows up with a whole bunch of clones and some really cool dropships, and they shoot the place up, take all the Jedi and escape directly into a massed land invasion of Geonosis with lots of infantry, lots of wheelie tanks, walkie tanks, no real, uh, you know, treaded tanks, which is funny. Lots of flying around, blowing up. We're seeing the Jedi as warriors, Mm -hmm. I think. Very much so. In mass, perhaps for the first time. Uh, For the first time in living memory. Right. For all of these Jedi, except for maybe Yoda. And Yoda is not necessarily pleased, but he is effective as a commander. As he's flying along, there's a lot of cuts to him of saying, attack this position, this is good, Mm. this is well. He's, Mm -hmm. He's commanding the battle. Dooku escapes. With, importantly, what look like the plans for the Death Star. Although, obviously, the other people don't know that. Okay. The Jedi don't know that, but yes. It looks like he has plans for the Death Star. He gets on his speeder bike and takes off because he's like, yeah, there's a down-the-land invasion of this arena. I can't defend this. 
and Anakin and Obi-Wan and Padme in their little hovercopter follow him. The hovercopter gets shot at, Padme falls out, Anakin loses his entire shit. This is kind of the ultimate test of Anakin's loyalties, I think, his competing loyalties to the Jedi Order and to Padme. Because Obi-Wan is telling him, I cannot take Count Dooku alone. I need you. And if you do this, if you jump out of the speeder after Padme, you will be expelled from the Jedi Order. And Anakin is absolutely losing his mind and is prepared to do anything to make sure that Padme is okay, which she is. Yeah. She's fine. She's fine. Obi-Wan and Anakin make their way to Count Dooku's hangar. And right as they do, their ship is blown up, so they have no reinforcements. And they go in to fight Count Dooku. And Anakin is promptly KO'd by Dooku. Dooku just electroshocks him into the corner. And then Obi-Wan and Dooku fight. Dooku zaps Obi-Wan twice, takes him out of the fight. Dooku, it feels like, is essentially playing with both of them. He talks a lot of trash, but he's got the game to back it up. He puts them down easily. Uh, Anakin gets back up, grabs Obi-Wan's lightsaber. Okay, can we talk about this amazing callback to the Phantom Menace? Because in the Phantom Menace final boss battle, Obi-Wan has to pick up Qui-Gon's lightsaber to finish Mm -hmm. the fight. And Anakin has to pick up Obi-Wan's lightsaber to finish the fight in this episode. Although... Because we don't know that those are either of their lightsabers because they're just handed them by random Jedi in the battle. But yes, it is theirs in the sense that they had them. Uh, Anakin has two lightsabers. One of them gets promptly chopped in half and then his other one gets chopped off at the wrist and they're out of the fight. Sam! I mean, it's an important thing because later on in the original trilogy, that's one of the, the things that is said about Anakin is... You know, speaking about how he's more machine than man, having had an arm chopped off, there's lots of changes that have occurred. And this shows that losing a limb, while not debilitating, does deprive you of the humanity of it. But either way, Obi-Wan and Anakin are lying in a literal pile in the corner. When Yoda shows up, we learn that Count Dooku was Yoda's Padawan. Okay, when I tell you I paused the movie and screamed a little bit and then wrote down kind of the generations of Padawans and Masters. Yoda trained Dooku, who trained Qui-Gon, we found out, who trained Obi-Wan, who trained Anakin. Mm -hmm. That is very exciting. It is. There's a lot going on. And I can't imagine how it feels to Yoda to have one of his... Padawans, you know, who's been a friend for presumably, I mean, hard to say, but this is like one fifth of Yoda's life. So Yoda's known Dooku for a very long time and seeing him bust out a red lightsaber over the bodies of two Jedi and he was part of this whole thing, which killed a lot of Jedi. Yoda's pretty pissed off. He's unhappy in this situation. Count Dooku tries the lightning trick with him. Yoda just puts it in his hand. They try force pushing each other. There's this incredibly badass moment where Count Dooku says, it's clear that this battle will not be decided by our mastery over the force. Mm -hmm. It's time for a lightsaber battle. Which, going back to the early part of the movie in the chase scene, Anakin 
and Obi-Wan are bantering about how good Anakin is with a lightsaber. And they talk about how, you know, you don't compare it to Master Yoda. Oh, right. Those of us who are watching these movies in the release order, we're like, no way Yoda's good with a lightsaber. But speaking of Yoda being good with a lightsaber, at this moment when they fight with a lightsaber, you see why Yoda is super scary with a lightsaber. He is very quick. He flurries around Count Dooku. Count Dooku already shown to be a real nasty character with a lightsaber. And Count Dooku, kind of by nature of being six foot three, has the high ground pretty much always. Christopher Lee's actually six foot five. Oh my god. Yes. Very imposing. Yoda is two foot three. (laughs) Two foot nothing. Yeah. Yoda's Yoda's small. So they have him flipping around like a mad lad, just zooming about. Uh, Count Dooku ends up deciding to make his escape. So he drops a plot device on Anakin and Obi-Wan, and Yoda has to force lift it up. And in the meantime, Dooku makes good his escape, gets in his cool ship. Basically taking the plans to the Death Star to Palpatine and Coruscant. Mm -hmm. And then we come to the close of the movie. Yeah. The close of the movie has a lot of interesting scenes. One of them is... Yoda saying, begun, the Clone War has. Obi-Wan calls it a victory. He says Mm -hmm. to Mace Windu, wow, I don't think this would have been a victory without the clones. And Yoda from the corner says, victory, you say? The shroud of the dark side has fallen, begun, the Clone War has. Mm -hmm. And as this is going on, we see a whole bunch of ships, big dagger-shaped ships, which look like Star Destroyers being loaded up with a bunch of people wearing white armor to the Imperial March. And importantly, we see Palpatine overseeing the formation of this clone army, which is this really striking, eerie moment of realizing that Palpatine is overseeing both sides of this war. Yes, because Jar Jar had in fact elected him Supreme Chancellor and his first act was the creation of the Grand Army of the Republic. He was granted emergency powers. Mm -hmm. And then... We see, finally, Anakin and Padme get married with his new robo-hand, giving her his titanium hand in marriage. With R2 and C-3PO to witness. Mm-hmm. And then... Stolen C-3PO. <laughs> and then we, we close in the end of the movie with this feeling that there is a lot of darkness ahead. Yes. So, a lot happened in the second half of this movie. What really stood out to you? I desperately want to talk about death and killing and clones in the perspective from the perspective of a Jedi. Mm -hmm. So we find out on Kamino that it takes half a lifetime to grow a clone, Mm -hmm. right? And their genes are edited. Their independent streak is sort of spliced out of them, but it still takes half a human lifetime to grow a clone. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see what the death of a clone what the significance of that is to the Jedi. Well, you're in a lot of luck. I think that that's going to be a not explored in the movies, but it is something which is deeply explored in the TV series, The Clone Wars. Right. So the reason that I want to explore this is because the theme of death in this movie is really nuanced and really thorny. We see Anakin murdering the Tusken Raiders, right? And from half a galaxy away, Yoda is sensing not only all of the pain and darkness that Anakin is going through, but he's also sensing, I think, just the death 
of all of these sentient beings. And I'm just curious, do the Jedi ever kill? And if they do, how do they justify that? That's an interesting thing. The first time we see a Jedi actually kill someone in this movie is when Mace Windu kills Jango. Right. Obi-Wan comes close with the assassin in Coruscant. He disarms her, but, um, you know, as that movie later shows, having your hand taken off by a Jedi is bad news. But if you've got good health care, you can have a robo hand to put on later. Oh, my God. Okay, so you're right. So Mace Windu beheading Jango is the first death by Jedi. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in Phantom Menace, there's only one kill by the Jedi. And that's when um, that's when Obi-Wan takes out Darth Maul. Mm. And he's like... That feels like a self-defense move. He's shooting sparks over Obi-Wan in the pit, having just killed his master. He's got a red lightsaber. He's a bad guy. You got to take him out. Do you think it's a sort of greater good utilitarian sort of viewpoint? It will do more good to kill this being than to allow them to run amok killing others. So I've recently read the High Republic book, the first one, and it explores this in a fair bit of depth because... Something that Qui-Gon talks about in The Phantom Menace is the living force. And this is also explored in The Clone Wars. The force surrounds us, it binds us, but it's in every living thing as well as just everything. As part of every living thing, that means when you take a life, you're extinguishing a part of the force. So you can see why Jedi do not want that. Mm. And their relationship with individuals is difficult because they feel every death around them as the force being extinguished from something. So as things are extinguished, they, they definitely notice that. Does that mean that there is a utilitarian, a self-defense, a greater good argument to be made for killing? I think absolutely. When Mace Windu is sitting there, I don't know if he has necessarily a choice in how he's going to take out Django because he might be aware he's a Jedi master. He's a grandmaster on the council or whatever he might be aware of how dangerous a mandalorian is and he's like dude i gotta take this guy out of the fight so i can save my friends i think the question that i'm trying to ask is if one death means so much to a jedi how can they justify the deaths of so many clones yeah that's something that's going to be deeply explored and part of that also goes to the interesting militarism of this from like an American perspective. There's a lot of callbacks to imagery of the Vietnam War. Hmm. Tell me more about that. The, I mean, if you had played Ride of the Valkyries over the scene, over the arena, when the cavalry rides in on things that look a lot like helicopters, shooting the place up, and then like they jump on board the helicopters and take off, it would have been a Vietnam War movie. <sighs> and that is that like... You want to depict your opponents as a horde and that your guys are the elite guys. Mm. That, that goes almost double because I think I actually misspoke. There's a lot of kills of sentient creatures by Anakin when he's killing Geonosians. But they don't seem to count because they're not humanoids. They're bug people. So there's a difference there. He chops a bunch of them in half, but they are othered by nature of being so alien. Mm. And, you know, there's like 150,000 of them. And it's Anakin. But 
at that moment in the arena, they're surrounded and there's dead Jedi everywhere. We watch as the Jedi get whittled down from like 150 down to about 30. That was a question I had. How many Jedi died in this battle? According to various sources, which are of varying accuracy, a lot. I feel like between 40 and 100 seems like a normal amount, which is a ton. How many Jedi are there? Not a lot. Not a ton. Wow. So maybe Yoda truly felt like this was the only course forward, was to bring in this clone army, however dubious their origins may seem. Yes, and there's an interesting question, I think, to be asked about why Count Dooku is an ex-Jedi, but they don't know that he's a fallen Jedi, still a dark side force user, until Yoda is fighting him. Oh, you're right. So in the first 10 minutes of the movie, Mace Windu says about Count Dooku, he's a former Jedi. Assassination isn't something in his character that he'd be capable of. Mm-hmm. So the the council's been blindsided about the true nature of Dooku, obviously. Well, he's still not assassinating. He didn't order the assassination. Newt Gunray did. It says something about the perception that they have of someone who's been trained in the Jedi way. I, It felt to me like they take for granted an inherent goodness, mm-hmm. an ethical orientation of someone who's been trained by the Jedi. As well as it opens up a whole can of worms of that someone can, in fact, leave the Jedi Order on terms approaching, you know, reasonableness, which Mm -hmm. Count Dooku appears to have. Mm -hmm. And then he proceeded to put together a massive political organization to create the Separatist Alliance with the Trade Federation, with the Geonosians, with the Techno Union. Speaking about the ethical nature of Jedi Mm -hmm. brings up a central question that I have about this movie. And it's about the impossible task of being a Jedi. And it is more so about the nature of compassion versus love. Is that vague enough for you? I, that is something that Anakin speaks about at length. Exactly. Exactly. Because the way he sees things is that you need to be compassionate, which is part of love, which is part of empathy, because he's still a very young man. And he's obviously in this movie full of hormones. He's full of living this self-created ideal of being Padme's husband. That is what his main goal up until this point has been. And as part of that, he's lived this life that he can't imagine has emotional nuance beyond the emotional nuance that he is able to exhibit. So Qui-Gon says in The Phantom Menace to baby Anakin, this is a hard life. Yeah. But I'm not sure that anyone really can understand what it means to be forbidden from love, but encouraged to be compassionate until you are faced with this ultimate choice that Anakin is faced with. It's definitely a callback to monastic orders mm. and taking like vows of chastity, but as, as well as vows of compassion. Well, but here's the thing. No one ever said that the Jedi can't have sex. They they're, said that they can't love. Yes. Well, so you're forbidden could, to form attachments. So you could be, uh, this is kind of off topic, but you could be a total nymphomaniac and have sex with everybody you want and just not care about them, which is psychotic. Yes, especially because you would probably be able to or be using your 
force mind tricks on them to be like, you should sleep with me. Yes. Oh, freaky. Yeah. I think that that's an important part of it is the drilling in of the ethical code, which is why there's the, he's too old for this. Right. There's plenty of ways to twist the letter of the Jedi code, which we see Anakin doing. And Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. Yeah. I mean, but especially we see Anakin making this semantics argument to Padme, who says, I thought you were forbidden to love. And Anakin says on the refugee ship, Oh, but we're encouraged to show compassion. And I would say love is the greatest form of compassion. Mm -hmm. So he's very clearly twisting the Jedi code to make an argument that what he's doing is not wrong. Anakin throughout this movie particularly, I believe, shows a marked design. He's got a plan. He follows through with it. And he twists the rules to follow his plan. And he gets what he wants. He does get what he wants. There's even a moment with Padme where Padme is so good at setting boundaries. She says to Anakin, don't look at me that way. It makes me uncomfortable, which is an A plus setting of boundaries. And Anakin smirks at her because he knows that he got what he wanted, which was to have an effect on her. Mm. And we see this, you could call it a whittling down of Padme's defenses if in a more generous light. You could say Padme was falling in love with Anakin or sort of submitting to this adoration that he's showing her. But Anakin seems to know that what he's doing is frowned upon. Absolutely. Which is why he does it all in secret, of course. Right. So the end result is he gets what he wants and also a new robotic hand. Pretty cool. And I think to tie this up, what what I was really questioning was... We've talked a little bit about how the Jedi Council is aware that there is a weakness of the Force. The Jedi are crumbling from within. Mm -hmm. They're sparse. Their numbers are really low. Especially after this. Especially after this. And I guess what I'm saying is that I'm not surprised because the standards that they set for a fully trained Jedi Knight seem impossible to uphold. There's an argument to be made that people who are able to wield this kind of power must be held to a very high standard. Mm. Imagine you were a police officer on Coruscant and you're going after a Jedi or a force user who's doing like, who has basically the powers that if they're using them for evil, they're a supervillain. So they need to be held to an extremely high standard and they need to police their own because no one else can police them. It speaks to the breadth of abilities and the breadth of options in this wide galaxy of Star Wars, the things that you can do. Because there are other paths through the Force that are explored in depth in Rebels. Oh, interesting. And in definitely in the Clone Wars uh, with the Bindu and with the Night Sisters. Which I know nothing about, so I'm just nodding intelligently. Yes, but stay tuned. Fun stuff. As far as other pathways to the Force, which are meaningful, which give you the power without the way the Jedi look at things. Hmm. I think circling back to sort of combining this question with why Dooku is an ex-Jedi might have something to do with Yoda. Hmm. So Yoda, by this point, has been, I mean... A Jedi for, hard to say when he started being a Jedi, how old his species is, 
but he's probably been a Jedi for 600 years. He looks pretty good for a 700-year-old question mark? Question well, in, mark? in Return of the Jedi, he's 900 years old, so he's probably been a Jedi for 800 years. Oh my god. That You told me once that the, the reason that Yoda talks the way that he is could be because when he learned how to speak, the actual structure of language was different and he now just uses archaic sentence structures. Yeah, that's totally viable because he's been around forever and he's been in charge forever. How much of the Jedi code is the Yoda code? Ooh, oh, that's a good question. And that may be why his Padawan, Count Dooku, went a different direction looking for different guidance because the intertwining of the Republic and the Jedi is a weakness to be exploited throughout the events of this movie, the series, and the next movie. As you were speaking, you did bring up a question that I'd never considered before, which is that you could be a Force user and not initiated into the Jedi. Absolutely. There, sure, I, I can't believe I never thought of this before. Surely there are other paths for a Force user to take besides becoming a peace warrior soldier. There's always the Sith. Yeah, but there's only ever two of them. Yes, and the reason for that is due to events which occurred ostensibly a thousand years before this. And there used to be a whole bunch of Sith, but they realized that having too many of them means that there's too many competing interests, which is something that's a little bit approached in this movie and that Count Dooku, Darth Tyrannus, is trying to take out Palpatine because he feels he's powerful enough to do so. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to get help to do it. Spoiler alert, he doesn't, but he tries. Okay, this has been very heavy, but I have a fun question for you, Sam. Uh, what is your favorite Padme outfit of this movie? <laughs> because the costume department does the most with Padme. They, they really do. There's, in fact, a traveling museum expo of Padme's outfits. Oh, I would totally go to that. Yeah. Uh, I heard that Padme has 130 costume changes over the prequel movies, which I believe. I, I love that because, you know, in the other movies, like, Han Solo wears like two shirts, you know. Ray has essentially one outfit that she just gets dry cleaned once. <laughs> and Padme, 130 outfits, all of them completely over the top. It's what she deserves. In this movie, I'll tell you what, I, I think that her wedding gown is too understated. She had a better wedding gown at the end of Phantom Menace in her parade dress, mm-hmm. TPQH. Her nightgown, when Zam Wessel sends in murder caterpillars to kill her is just way over the top it's like satin but with like brocading like cleavage and back pearls i'm sorry my eyes were on the murder caterpillars and not natalie portman's cleavage in that moment but i do appreciate the priorities this movie came out when i was like 16 years old so (laughs) (laughs) um and then she's got a very hip very cool outfit in the arena when she's wearing, you know, her stark white combat midriff bearing turtleneck. I think it was cooler before a plot device forced Natalie Portman to show off her six pack, but like more power to her. She looks great. You know, it was just a very exploitative moment. When I think of Padme 
I think of her in that outfit because that is her at her best when during the arena fight, she's running around. It's like a chariot scene because they get behind the big rhino. They're being hauled around in the cart behind it. Padme is just like taking shots. She really is. She's a crack shot from what I can tell. Yeah, she's she's doing great work. And she she's the only one who's had to bleed this movie so far. She got... You know, she's the first one injured in the movie. And I think Django would beg to differ. Django dies around that time, yeah. But it didn't hurt for very long. But he... Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> okay, pick one. Pick an outfit. I think it's that one. It's that one? I think it's that one. That's I'm a good sure. outfit. Okay, there is a very brief scene um, post-Fireside Sexy Times Anakin kind of goes to bed, has horrible nightmares about Shmi, Mm -hmm. is standing dramatically on the patio in Naboo, thinking about his mom. Padme comes out with these phenomenal curls and this like extremely cool shawl thing. It's dark blue and she's got like a white dress. She looks amazing. I would wear that outfit in a New York minute. I would wear that to Coachella. It is a great outfit. (laughs) Also, when she's hanging out with Anakin's family on Tatooine, she's wearing this extremely cute blue jumpsuit that with these flowy pants and a midriff top. I would wear that in a heartbeat. She does look very cool in comparison to his family because everyone on Tatooine wears bathrobes. And she's like, uh, do I fit in? And they're like, no. Somebody put great. the Padme collection at Kohl's or something. <laughs> <laughs> I would buy it. That's just all you're wearing now? Yeah. Show up at work wearing a bathrobe and a midriff bearing top and claw marks and blaster i mean badass absolutely is it that time what time it's time for baywatch (laughs) it's time for baywatch who was bay in the second half of episode two no repeats so well, you can repeat, but not to the first half. So no Obi Wan. Oh, is it Obi Wan? No, it's not Obi Wan. You just know me too well. If we were doing one episode per movie, it would be Obi Wan. He would be Bay. Definitely. Obey Wan Kenobi. It's in the name. It's in the name. But I'm going to have to say, for the second half of Attack of the Clones, it is R two D two who saves Padme's life and shows off his sweet new rocket boots. Oh my god, I forgot about the rocket boots. And he boots. bullies C three PO. He actually and he fixes C three PO in the middle of a battle, which is classic R two. Actually, you're right. I had good reasons for R two to be Bay, and then I forgot about all of those additional excellent qualities. So he's <laughs> he's even more Bay than he was 35 seconds ago. <laughs> Who is your bae? Mace Windu. Really? I love Mace Windu. Okay, tell me more. I'm shocked that it's not Christopher Lee as Count Dooku. Ooh. It's tough to make the bad guy your bae. Uh, Christopher Lee, by himself, very cool, great villain. Also really good friends with uh, Peter Cushing, who was uh, Grand Moff Tarkin in episode four. Hmm. See, I would say if your villain can be your bae, that is a really finely drawn villain, and you did a really good job with your characterization. Well, that's almost convincing. I'm sticking with Mace Windu. Okay, tell me why. Uh, Mace Windu is an incredible badass. Yes. That is all. (laughs) (laughs) I have spoken, Sam says. (laughs) Mace Windu shows up. He doesn't point his lightsaber at the dude he knows how to use a lightsaber. He doesn't point his lightsaber at like all the droids. He points it at the major threat in the room, which is Django. And then he says, this party's over. 
And then he gets not only shot by an army of droids, but also some jerk shoots a flamethrower at him. And what does he do? He jumps out of a window and takes his cloak off and then proceeds to like rally the troops. Which is such an Obi-Wan moment when you say it like that, jumping headfirst and throwing your cloak off. It's a very cool Jedi trick. You wear the cloak and you always stand near a window. It's very dramatic. Oh my God. Mace Windu shows up, kicks ass, does not bother to take names. Not at all. And in the escalation order of badassery throughout the movie, we know that in a one-on-one fight, Jango can beat Obi-Wan. Yes. And it was a long, drawn-out fight with lots of lots of shenanigans. It required Boba Fett helping a little bit. And then it continued, it continued, and Jango comes in. He's pretty darn scary. We, we've established that he's scary. Mace Windu takes him out in two seconds. Mace Windu mops the floor with him. And that means that Mace Windu is a really hardcore character. And I think that, once again... Samuel L. Jackson is often portrayed as a very over-the-top character Mm -hmm. because he's great at that. Oh, God, it's so much fun. He's great at doing that. All of his roles that I can think of off the top of my head, Pulp Fiction, Black Snake Moan, he's Mm. great in uh, The Avengers. Mm. He's a very over-the-top, loud, rambunctious character. And God, does he do it well. He does. Mace Windu does not. Mace Windu has equal portions of badassery and a lot of subtlety. And that subtlety is carried by Samuel L. Jackson's, like, outside Star Wars, universe-spanning, multiverse-spanning <laughs> presence of character. <laughs> I, you can already, I will, I will put this on the line. Every episode of Clone Wars that has Mace Windu in it, he's already my bae. Oh my god. Mace Windu is real cool. I respect that. I respect that. I reserve the right to take that back. But there's a few, as I'm as I'm playing forward in my mind, there's a few interesting characters. But Mace Windu, very cool. Count Dooku, extremely strong runner-up. So we're gonna take a extended hiatus from the movies as we move into the Clone Wars TV series now. Mm, we will be back to the movies in approximately one year. Approximately seven seasons of Clone Wars. And Bad Batch. Bad Batch takes place after. Ah, oh, shit. Well, we'll see. Um, because Bad Batch is not yet. We haven't okay. watched it yet. Well, I'll clip that out. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, So next week, we're going to talk a little bit about why we're watching the Clone Wars, why you should watch the Clone Wars, what some of the important parts of the Clone Wars are, and my gosh, there's some great characters that I'm really excited to meet. Importantly, if you have loved ones in your life who don't want to watch the Clone Wars with you, I have some words for them because I understand them, because I was them, and now I have changed my tune. Now you're really excited to watch it because... Because of because of how good Attack of the Clones was. Exactly. It takes a little bit of understanding the subtlety, but I think Attack of the Clones is a exceptional movie in terms of downplaying what is the over-the-top action of the Star Wars universe, putting enough high-power prequel energy to keep things exciting. And really deft plotting. I cannot say that enough. Mm-hmm. And 
putting together a lot of tension into yeah. the universe looking forward. It definitely has its flaws, particularly, I think, in some of the pacing of action scenes as well as some of the dialogue. But it's a good film. Solid. Yeah, solid film. Eight out of ten. (laughs) (laughs) All right, y'all. As always, you can find us on social media at Growing Up Skywalker. If you like the show, please leave us a review on whatever app you listen to your podcast on or send it to a friend or a loved one who should also be watching Star Wars with us. And if you'd like to get access to some of the fun stuff on our Patreon, you can become one of our patrons. Finally, if you have any questions, please send us a listener holocron at growingupskywalker.gmail.com. We promise we read every single one. Tune in next Tuesday for the first episode of the Clone Wars TV show. Da, 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 da. Bye, y'all. <laughs>